0: you have your copies of scripture, if you will, turn uh, to Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11. We want to extend a big uh, congratulations to Matthew and Katie and the arrival of Josiah, we bless the Lord for him and uh, grateful for uh, you as a family and um, just bless the Lord for him. want to encourage you, if you will, to continue to pray for um, Josiah and pray for uh, Katie and Matthew as they make the adjustments and, uh, and their whole family as they are uh, working together through that. Uh, there are others, I'm sure, that uh, are... Uh, not with us today, uh, Daniel's not with us today, not feeling well and want to pray for him, uh, and there are others, so for those that you look around and you see um, that are not here, um, love on the ones who are here, love on the ones who are not here by reaching out to them and encouraging them uh, as they uh, uh, as they are away from us today, uh, Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, before we read Isaiah 11, I want you to hold your place there. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 15 for just a moment. I I want to give you some context, and we will not refer back to it again today, but I want to give you some context here for this. Uh, The title of our series is Heaven's Hope. Um, Last week we looked at the fact that this hope is delayed, but it is for certain. We can, we, we can know that it seems that the hope is delayed, as is, is the case in most times. The, the, the reality or the fulfillment of that hope, if it is a real hope, if it's a certain hope, uh, it oftentimes is Delayed. We're still struggling, navigating through hard things and hard times, and we're we're hopeful uh, in Christ for things to be better. and but it, but it's not there yet. It's delayed. And the title of our message this morning is, uh, Heaven's Hope, a Just Ruler." But I want you to hear all of hope, all of hope in relation to what Paul says, uh, beginning in verse eight. And I want you to hear this, Uh, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 15, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So when we're talking about the covenants, when we're talking about the prophetic word, when we're talking about the promises, and uh, Adam referred to one of those in Isaiah chapter 9 today, uh, the promises given there uh, understand that the, uh, the, the commentary on that and its purpose rest in, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So as you notice, we began this morning singing about the mercy of God and he who has uh, done a mighty thing, he who is mighty and has done a great thing. We're always pointing back to God's mercy. That'll be particularly important today when we hear about this just ruler uh, that is at the very heart of this hope that's being communicated. And then Paul goes on now and, and, uh, and, and quotes from the Old Testament, therefore I'll praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound uh, in hope. Looking back at Isaiah chapter 11, I want us to hear the whole chapter. We won't back up into chapter 10 like we did last week. But I want us to hear the whole chapter uh, as But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros and Cush and from Elam and Shinar and Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. He'll raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put, on their, put their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Will you pray with me? Father, today, will you help us as we seek to understand your word and the hope that was communicated by your Spirit through Isaiah? Grant us to sense the reality of that hope in our own hearts and minds today as we consider the one in whom that hope rests and the work that he has done to ensure and secure that hope. In Christ's name, amen. It might help us to be reminded uh, just for a moment that Isaiah is writing 700 years before Christ. That's a long time. None of us are 700 years old. In fact, we, can't even, we really can't even grasp 700 years. We didn't know anyone from 700 years ago. Uh, it's just hard to get your mind around it. But he wrote this and gave this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 700 years before Christ came. Now last week we took the opportunity to look at some of those messianic promises that Isaiah gives. It's incredible to think about it and we won't rehearse those today. But each word given about Christ was intended to instill hope. Hope in the lives of people during times when they were making hard decisions about who they were going to follow. Who they were going to obey. What they were going to do sometimes even where they were going to go. How they would live their lives, how they would navigate through their lives during the seasons of judgment that had come and would eventually still come because of their sin. Questions were, would they in humility confess their sin? Would they repent and turn from it? Would they turn to God? Would they love Him and obey His word? Or would they harden themselves toward him? Would they be apathetic about him? Would they do as some of us do today, say, yes, I know you're right, but I want to do it my way. And in so doing, live without the hope and confidence that God intended his people to enjoy. I want you to hear that. God intended his people to rejoice and enjoy hope-filled lives. Now, I want you to know that's not prosperity gospel talk. God didn't intend for you to have a million dollars. You may have it, but He didn't. That's not what He set out to do. Uh, not, n- not specifically. broad. if you have it, it's because God has granted it to you, or, or whatever other other thing you have. This isn't prosperity gospel talk. What we are certain of is that God intended his people to rejoice in and take joy in hope. Steadfast, sure, certain hope. I would mentioned earlier that our series title was Heaven's Hope. And today we want to look at this one, the just ruler. I want you to look back in verses 2 through 5, and we'll back back up. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And then I want you to hear this this first phrase in verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And out of that, listen to everything else he'll do. This just ruler. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. And we're going to say that this has to be remarkable because the only way that we have of judging things and situations and circumstances are by what we see and what we hear. Brian, you'll probably stand before a judge sometime this week and defend someone. And all the evidence will be pointing toward, toward what? What someone can see and what someone can hear and testify to. Then this is remarkable. This is remarkable. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes, by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his ways and faithfulness the belt of his Lord. The need for a just ruler. I want you to think about this. The need for a just ruler. Uh, Even now, as we ponder that statement, we admit that there is a need for justice. There's even at times on our part a desire for justice, most especially when we've been wronged. People come when they have been wronged, they want justice. When they have been the one who has wronged, they want mercy and grace. But when they have been wronged, they want justice. That's embedded within us. Why? Because we've been created in the image of God, and God is a just God. And in that, embedded in God and His Word and the law is this this absoluteness, this, this, this justice that is there. Absolute truth. We want to know that there is absolute truth. Something concrete that we can appeal to and establish the fact when we have been wrong. Our civil and criminal law attempts to do this. Of course, there's more to it than just having the law. Just having the objective point to which we may appeal. There is the work of establishing guilt and innocence and then there's the execution of a just judgment. In other words, a judgment that is commensurate with the offense. That is at the, the very heart of justice. Think about that. But also think about this. When Isaiah is writing up to that point, there had never been an absolute just ruler. There had been no absolute just human ruler. David was identified by God as a man after God's own heart. In fact, we hear that from Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are there and they're speaking and says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, He put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Cana, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And then he had him removed. And he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said... I found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And we're pointing back to verse 1 of chapter 11. Isaiah is prophesying, he's saying, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We mentioned it last week, but I've been chewing on it this week over and over again. We have a stump, we have a root, and we have a branch. That root is Christ himself that gave life to the stump that now comes forth as a branch, one who will, from the very purpose and foundation of the world, accomplish the thing that God intended to accomplish, and that was to bring hope to bring hope to his covenant people to bring hope to the gentiles and bring them within the within the framework of a new covenant a better covenant a covenant that would give life i'm just rehearsing those things that we've been seeing this morning about the life that comes in him and the death that has been ended because it is a death that he took on himself all of these things are incredible, and that is what Isaiah is pointing to. Therein rests the hope. But God was not wrong about David. No, David wasn't an absolute just king. He wasn't wrong about him when he, or mischaracterized him when he said he was a man after his own heart. He was a man who had a heart. And we're pointing back to David in that, that even at the very stump of Jesse, there was one who had a heart for God. I want you to hear that. Who had a heart for God. This isn't to turn this into a moral teaching today. But I just wonder today, how many of us would be characterized by God himself as this is a man or a woman who has a heart for me? Who is a man or woman after my own heart? He was not perfectly just. We know that, David. He sinned. That is Isaiah's point. Two of his most notable offenses included adultery and murder. Breaks pretty high on top of the list of the things that we would consider that that, that are that, that are not acceptable. then David testified to this. Yes, I am sinful. I was sinful from my mother's womb. His justice was necessarily imperfect. Our justice is necessarily imperfect. We don't have the capability of being perfectly just. David couldn't know his people's heart. That's the point. We'll see that in just a moment. He couldn't know it, just like we can't know it. He could not know their thoughts and their motives. Though wise, he wasn't all wise. So what's the point? The point is that we understand that we have a need for justice, but we cannot find that justice. We have a need for a just ruler, but there is no just ruler. And we will not find a just ruler, nor will we find justice until we know the Lord Jesus Christ, until we look to him because he is the one that is the branch that came from his root and purpose that provided for what was to be this great tree where David's throne would be carried on and it will be carried on, but it was not going to be carried on and it had not stayed within the framework of of men who were after God's own heart. And even if it had, there would have been failures, but it had not. I was thinking about it this week. You know, we can be helped with wise and just political and spiritual leaders. In fact, we are. We are, we know that. But we cannot be wholly helped. No person, government, political leader, Or ideology can produce justice. And there is no kingdom that is complete without it. That is the point. We are looking ahead to another kingdom. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks, this other kingdom. But we have a just ruler, a different king, and we have an entirely different kingdom that God is establishing. One where there will be absolute justice Remember, Isaiah is bringing this word of hope to Israel. And here's why. Israel was where she was at that time because the leadership had failed. Now, the people bore the responsibility for it as well. But we're talking about needing a just ruler. And Isaiah was pointing and saying, we have not had one. We do not have one now. Do not place your hope and trust in one of these flawed, failed rulers because they are not just and they are not after God. But don't give up. There is one coming who is. And he is for certain coming. And the picture that he is painting and the kingdom that will be established is beyond anything that you can even begin to comprehend. Therein rests the hope. There is the hope. Ahaz was king at this time. In fact, he was going to be the last one. That was Isaiah's point. He was going to be the last one. He didn't delight in the fear of the Lord. He didn't. The Spirit of God wasn't on him. In fact, he spurned the prophets of the Lord. He hated the Word of God, despised it. It's as if he took the pages of the Bible that's been said and just ripped it out. Can you imagine someone, a leader, standing in our presence even now and ripping the pages out of the Bible and saying, these mean absolutely nothing. No, we still, I think, hold it up in our courtrooms today. And people will place their hand on it and give some kind of an oath or swear in some way. But the the point is, the point is, is this king had just completely In in, in his character, in his nature, and in his actions, disregarded the word of God. He did not have any interest in God at all. And Isaiah is telling the people that there is one coming who will bring the help and justice that is needed. There's one coming that will care for the people. There's one coming who will do everything necessary for the needs of the people and will meet their needs greatest need for justice because you see everything rises and falls on justice let's see how turn to Romans chapter 3 and we will see how everything rises and falls just hold on back there Brian You'll see how everything rises and falls with justice. In verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. May I make note of that. Because the whole world will be made accountable to God. The whole world is accountable to God because God has created every person and everything. and, And if we are not quite sure what that means, young and old alike, all of us, we stand accountable to God for who we are. We stand accountable to God for who we are in front of Him because He has given us life. You know, there's... Janice has said this to our children at various times. You may have said it to yours. It's probably not the best thing to say, and Janice, I'm not throwing you under the bus, but we've all heard it that, you know, the children are spat off to their parents and their parents said, remember, I, I brought you into this world and I'll do what? What? and I'll take you out of it. Um, There is, in the sense of that, an assertion of authority, an assertion of authority, but when God says, I've given you life, I brought you into this world, and I will take you out of it, and I'll deal with you accordingly, that is no joke. That is the real joke. That's the real accountability. And that's what he's saying. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Hold your finger there and I want to go back and, 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 and connect that to a statement that I just made. I just made this statement. He will do everything necessary for the needs of the people and will meet their greatest need for justice. That's what that means. By doing what? By being put forward freely on his part and God giving him as a propitiation by his blood To be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. We mentioned David a moment ago. Seemingly he had passed over David's act of murder. Seemingly he had passed over David's act of adultery. Seemingly. And and the people were looking at that now. David is a man after God's own heart. He's committed murder, he's committed adultery, and he's done all these other things. And Abraham had done likewise. Not murder, but had done likewise. Moses had done all of that. And seemingly, in the people's minds, when they are trying to give an account for it at Paul's time, they're saying that God has passed over these things. In other words, it's not really true that he is going to exact justice. And yet we just heard that he has in Christ... It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be what? Just and the justifier. Just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's incredibly important here. Because Jesus is the one who did what was necessary for justice to hold Everything intact, for God's justice to, to, to be exacted, for His righteousness to be upheld. He's the one who's going to be Israel's help and strength, and as we sing, his cons- their consolation. How? Well, notice what it said in verse 2 And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Upon him. That is the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit of God will be upon him and in him because they are in union with one another in the Godhead. And what that will mean will be that he will have wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and knowledge. And most of all, and this is. I say most of all because we want to press on this point. Most of all, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And we know that that is significant because in verse 3, the characterization and the statement is what? And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Everything flows from his delight. This ruler, this just ruler, everything flows from what he loves most. Everything flows from what he focuses his attention on. Everything flows from what he most wants. Everything flows from what he most respects and who he most respects and who he looks to. And who he lives for. And who he seeks to obey. And that is who? The Lord. What does it say? It doesn't say he begrudgingly fears the Lord. It doesn't say he trembles at the fearing God. None of that. It says that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In other words, pointing to the fullness of righteousness that is consistent with him being God, and as we have sung already this morning, and him being man, the fullness of righteousness who fears God most, and then everything works out of that. I'm going to pause here for just a minute because this is important for us. The same is true for us in this sense. Is that the fear of the Lord and our recognition of His authority and our love for Him and our passion for Him and our, our ambition for Him and Him being upheld is the thing that drives all the rest of our life. The question would be for us today, are we here able to give witness and testimony that that is true of us? That's not for you to answer to me. That is for you to give attention to. Because that is what is necessary. Our faith in Christ, our longing for God. Each week so far, and we will through the rest of the weeks of Advent, and we often do this anyway, but we wanted to do it for Advent. We wanted to sing every week requesting the coming of the Lord our need for Him, our need for the final consummation of all of this because in that is where our ultimate hope rests. We will not sing and look forward to the coming of Christ if we do not fear God now. We will fear His coming. Most will fear His coming for fear that they will not be received. And you know why? Not because of a misunderstanding of His grace, but because we are certain that our lives are inconsistent with fearing Him. Not that we are perfect, but that we know that we give little attention really to looking to him and longing for him and loving him. Notice what Isaiah is trying to help the people see. He's trying to help them see that there needs to be and will be in this one who will represent us the delight and the reverence of God. Unlike Ahaz. Unlike Ahaz. And this one who's coming, unlike Ahaz, will have the character of a godly man. Better yet, will have the very character of God. It's incredible to give consideration to these things as we look to him. Now, notice how all of this works out for his rule. Well, first off, he'll rule with joy being centered in the will and authority of God. We know that because it says his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That's where his joy is. He will think the thoughts of God. This one that's coming will think the thoughts of God. His heart will be set on honoring God in all that he does. He'll not make a decision apart from knowing the will of God regarding the matter. Admittedly, no mere man can do this. I know I can't. We can't. Your pastors can't. You can't. What do we do? Well, at best, we who claim to fear God and love Him and long for Him, at best we seek the counsel of the Lord, but we'll not always know God's will regarding every matter. We won't know that but we will trust in him and rest in him and look to his word to give us the direction that we can have. But this one that was coming knew the will and the purpose of God at every turn. In our Connect group class this past week, we were uh, working through the crucifixion of Christ in Luke's gospel. And we were... we, we We're talking about the prayer that Jesus prayed when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this is what we came down on. And Brian started it. He said, the one thing that we know is that when Jesus prayed, The Father always answered and he was always praying in the will of the Father and he knew what the Father was going to do. So when he said, Father forgive them for they know not what they do, he was talking about someone at least, some group there specifically for forgiveness. The point that we made in the course of that and looking at it is that there was no question that Jesus knew the will of God. Because he was God. That's the point here. He feared God. His delight was in God. He knew the Father because he was connected to the Father. Incredible in the incarnation how he is connected with the Father. And that is the beauty of everything that Isaiah is pointing to in these promises of Christ. To let them know that this is no mere man. This is a God-man with the character of God. I said for us, at best we'll pray, we'll seek God's counsel, but we'll not always know. At best we'll seek to walk in obedience, but even then we'll fail because of our sinfulness. But the great hope is that there is one who is like us, And has been tempted in every way like us, yet without sin, who represents us, who saves us by the blood of the cross. But notice not only that. Notice that he will judge with equity. Look at what it says. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. I want you to think about this for just a moment. A primary function of a king and then those that would be commissioned to do so under his authority and leadership was to judge the people. So it should not catch us off guard that this just ruler is ultimately about judging. That's the emphasis here. It's not that he has military prowess. It's not that. This just ruler is about judging because that's what the king does. That's his authority, extended to settle civil and criminal matters. We know this is true because we remember how the two women were brought to Solomon. Solomon had to do what? He had to give a judgment. Whose child is this? That's what kings did. When it got so hard that, that, I mean, they were the, the king was the Supreme Court. When other disputes could not be settled, it would ultimately, when no one else could settle the dispute, it would be brought to the king I want you to think about that for just a moment. Your sin, my sin, there's no other court that can handle it or deal with it. Our sinfulness, there's no one else that can deal with it. You can't deal with it. There's no one that can deal with your sin and my sin. It has to be carried to the Supreme Court, if you will. It has to be brought in front of this king to settle this dispute because there is a broken relationship that needs to be reconciled. And only he can do it. And only he can pass judgment on it. And it will be a judgment that gives life Or a judgment that gives death. But he's the one that will do it. And that's the point. And how will he do it? This promised hope will judge with equity. This promised hope will judge with equity. With real fairness. With real fairness where faith cuts across and intersects into that, in that those who trust in him and rest in him and his atoning work will have life. Because God's grace has been poured out and showered over those for life. That's what's so huge here is that Isaiah is putting a spotlight on one. Don't ever worry about justice and being, whether it's going to be dealt with fairly. I remember reading, and some of you may have read uh, R.C. Sproul's uh, Holiness of God, but uh, in his book, uh, he, he talks about an incident that took place in his early years of teaching uh, freshmen in college. Uh, and he was uh, uh, teaching an, an intro to the New Testament and an intro to the Old Testament. So this is what he, what he told them. They came in, they're all college freshmen. And he said, you have three papers due. He said, they'll be five to eight pages long. You have three papers due. One's due on September the 30th. One's due on October the 30th, and one is due on November the 30th. He said, it has to be on my desk by noon of that day. So as all college professors do, they remind. So he said he had, uh, I think it was uh, 250 in the class. I think it was 250. So first time around, he had 225 papers on his desk. There were 25 that didn't have papers. Uh, They came to him and said, just... Oh my goodness, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a college freshman. I have this newfound freedom and I just didn't get it done. Will you please give me a couple of more days? I so said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you two days. Have it here in two days. I won't penalize you for it. Won't have any effect on your grade. That was paper one. On October the 30th, there were 50 or 75, some of them. We had exams and we had all this other stuff Oh, Dr. Sproul, will you, will you just please, will you just please give us a couple of days? And he told him, he said, I'll, I'll give you two days. But he said, have it here in two days. And he said, and I won't penalize you. So he rolled around and he said, after that, he said he had the best reputation, that he was just the most gracious and kind professor. So he rolled around on September the 30th, and I think out of the 250, I think he had 100 papers on his desk. And 150 of them weren't there. And one of the young men said, will you give us a couple of days? He said, no. And he said, that's not fair. He said, that's a good point. He said, that's not fair. So here's what he did. He said, you didn't turn yours in on time on October the 30th either, did you? He said, well, you get an F for that one. And he said, and if I recall, you didn't turn yours in on time on September the 30th, and you get an F for that one. He said, now, does anyone else want me to be fair? Here is a picture of that fairness as it rests with the work of this just ruler is because he is here dealing with these things in equity, and it is not based upon what he sees that he can see. It's not that he's blind. Herein, Lady Justice doesn't have the blindfold on. This just ruler can see and does see, and he can hear and does hear. But here's the point that Isaiah was making. There's something else about him because he knows the thoughts and intentions and hearts of the people. Someone um, texted me yesterday and said, I'm trying to help someone understand the difference between confession and repentance. Can you help me? And I said, without writing a paper, and I texted two or three short paragraphs. The point that I made at the end was this, uh, that there is a confession of saying, that's wrong, I know that it's wrong. It's kind of a halfway confession. Repentance is, is when we turn away from the wrong to seek to do the right because we want to honor God. And it is a condition of the heart Therein is where what our eyes see and what our ears hear will not always tell us what's going on. But He knows the heart. Remember what He said? But He, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. You remember when He said that? It's when they accused him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. He knew their hearts. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 17. But then in John chapter 2 verses 24 and 25. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people. And needed no one to bear witness about man. In other words, he didn't need to hear anything from them, and he didn't need to see anything from them. It was consistent with what was in their heart, but he didn't need that. You know why? For he himself knew what was in man. He judges with equity based upon our hearts. So here's here's the point here for all of us. Here's the point for all of us is that he knows our heart. Now, you can tell me you don't know my heart. And you're right, I don't. And you don't know mine. But he does. So what we say and profess and what we do, as important as it is, should be consistent with our heart. But just know this. You can't hide anything from him. And I can't hide anything from him. We are exposed bare before this just ruler. Notice what it says. He'll judge the poor and meek in righteousness. You know, it's the king's responsibility to advocate for the poor and needy. If he doesn't, who else is going to do that for him? But I was thinking just, uh, just over the course of history with what history that I know and have studied, one of the great atrocities of history has been the injustices committed against the poor and the lowly. Those who had no wealth, who couldn't care for themselves, they've been despised by the rich, forgotten by the leaders, most of the time just exploited. In many cases... The weak have been slaughtered. Whole villages have been wiped out. People have been placed under forced labor to increase the wealth of the leaders. And Isaiah is saying, here's what he's saying, he's shouting it. This promised one from the stump of Jesse cares for the poor and needy and weak and meek. You say, well, that's great. He's a great humanitarian. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about. He has a bigger picture in mind, and we know that. Why? Because his delight is in the fear of the Lord. In other words, he knows the purposes of God. And what is that purpose? We're not talking about some earthly leader or military leader, though he will, and we'll see how he's going to do that. We're talking about a spiritual leader who at the very heart of everything has the redemptive purposes of God in mind. And at the center of God's purpose is his plan to see that the spiritually poor and meek are saved and redeemed. And we know this is the case. Because what does Jesus say? He said, "Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Matthew chapter five. You may want to turn there if you want to follow along. But I want you to hear. I want you to hear to be attitudes. Because he's pointing all along to this. This is what what Isaiah was saying about him. This is what he has in mind. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who are broken before God because of their sin. Blessed are those who mourn over this, mourn over their separation from God and mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He has in mind to save those who in humility bow before him Bearing all, knowing that they can't hide anything, and saying, I'm just undone. I have no other place to turn. You are my only hope. You. Notice what else it says there in the last part of verse 4. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. What is he saying? What is Isaiah trying to say? He doesn't need any help executing his justice. That's what he's saying. He doesn't need an army. He doesn't need armies. That's not He doesn't need anything. His voice is enough. I was thinking about it. This same one, remember, who is the root of this stump is the one who spoke everything in creation and everything came into being at the command of his voice. So also will he speak his word and life will come and judgment will come Life begins, life ends, eternal life begins, eternal damnation begins. And Paul says this and appeals to this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Here's what he says. Listen. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This is the work of the just ruler. And he is clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. I need a just ruler and you need a just ruler and his name is Jesus.